Welcome to Cooking the Books, the food and hospitality podcast discussing all aspects of the industry. We interview chefs, butchers, brewers, winemakers, restaurateurs, restaurant managers, and we talk about how they got to this point, through the good times and the bad, and what they've got planned for the future. This is Cooking the Books. So this is the last episode of season three. We'll be back in a couple of months once we've gathered ourselves a little bit. And this week we're in for a real treat. We've got a true crusader. We've got no other than Ben Shuri. Ben Shuri's got a restaurant called Attica, if you don't, if you're unaware, which has got three hats. It's had three hats for many years. It also won 20th best restaurant in the San Pellegrino Awards this year. It's arguably Australia's best restaurant. There's, he's got a, a documentary on Netflix on I think it's Chef's Table on season one of the Chef's Table um, is by far the most creative person that I've ever I've ever sat down and spoke to it's it's it's, a, it's another level it really is but as well as that he's probably one of the most generous people and open people and really interesting person I've met um, it was a real honour to sit down for a couple of hours and, and speak to Ben and look into get the opportunity to look into his philosophies and his views and, and the reason why he does these things and a bit of a look into his mind hopefully um yeah it was i'm absolutely stoked to be able to bring this uh, podcast to everyone i hope everyone enjoys it as much as i enjoyed doing it now over to the show ben thanks so much for your time honestly i'm I, i'm so grateful and you know and honored that you'd, you'd come on our podcast uh, it's a pleasure it, uh, it's literally because i uh, i like your um your parfait so much that's why i agreed <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> which is amazing i've just found that out i, I actually yeah i, I Someone did mention it to me, but I thought they were winding me up, to be honest. I was like, oh, I don't know about that. So I appreciate that. That's, that's no, such an honour, honestly. Yeah. Um, look, you did your first stage at 10. You got your first job at 14. You accepted into Polytechnic two years early. You were quick out the gates. Well, you always wanted to be a chef. Yeah, I did. I, uh, I, I decided to be a chef when I was five. Um, oh, and I'm, I have no idea why. Um, you know, in New Zealand at the time, that's about 1982. Um, you know, there's no, there's no television celebrities. There's no reasons, like public reasons, um, really, to be a chef. Um, the only thing that I loved was cooking. You know, that was the sole reason for wanting to be a chef. And uh, and I, I just remember it was like a very clear decision at age five, um, which sounds really weird, but um, it was just a very clear decision, and that was what I was going to do. And I was absolutely steadfast about it. Um, and that was so my entire childhood. Uh, while I still had ordinary hobbies like a kid like skateboarding and surfing and collecting stuff um i the whole time in the back of my mind i knew that i was going to be a chef and i was working towards it i was cooking at home a lot i cooked right throughout my whole my whole childhood um i had wonderful parents who enabled that to happen um you know my children cook a bit at home now they make a crazy mess and like as a chef it kind of like you out private, it. yeah it winds you up but but not in a bad way you know you need to let it happen but they were like on another level. Like I made you know, an insane mess in the kitchen, you know, like any um, five, six, seven-year-old will make in the kitchen when they're left to their own devices as well. Like, really? Just yeah, left? Left. Knives, yeah. oven on, yeah, gas oven on. on. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, they were probably watching from afar, yeah. my mother particularly, yeah. but um, 
But yeah, I recall doing it unaided at a really young age, like baking cakes and stuff. Like what you're saying there about parents, I'm also a parent. You've got three. I've, I've, yes, I do. Yeah, yeah I've yeah, got three one. Children. And, you know, you're saying you've got to leave them and, and let them do them kind of things, make the mess or whatnot. Do you feel like, as a parent now, it takes a lot to, especially like to let your kids go and play outside, let your kids play with knives, not play with knives, but like use knives and trust them. Like, I felt like I got that also. Like, I remember going to um, Scotland with my grandparents, see, see my auntie. And literally, he would let me out my catapult and air, uh, a gat gun, like an air gun kind of thing. And be like, just come back in a few hours. It was fields. And I always say to my wife, there was a river at the bottom of that of them fields, a fast flowing river. If I'd have fell in there, it would have been game over. But they kind of trust me. They knew that I wouldn't fall in that river, you know, like, yeah, there's, as a parent there's a certain now. amount of faith and risk associated with that. I mean, I had a childhood very similar. It was a very wild childhood that I had, you know. Um, we weren't acting inappropriately ever like we were very respectful children but we had like this crazy level of freedom you know I remember I dug um, a series of tunnels um, underground several times in my childhood and I was thinking about the other day one of those one of those tunnels kind of was in the side of a riverbank and it went I dug it down to the side and it sort of wove around in the riverbank but then eventually it went actually out into the river so you Underneath. Could actually, yeah you could actually come up through the bottom of the tunnel and swim into the river. I mean, at any time that could have collapsed on me and, and I could have died, you know? Yeah. Like, um, and I think about that now, I didn't think about it then. You know, um, my children don't have that same level of freedom. We live in the city, so they obviously don't have access to digging tunnels and dirt. But, but if you did, would you let them? Uh, yeah, I probably would, but I would want to do it with them probably. I'd be a little, I feel like I'd be naturally a little bit more cautious, but I feel like I try to try to be the sort of parent which yeah. lets them fall over, you know, we're done trying to pick them up. Like, you no, know, last week I was at the skate park with my nine-year-old daughter, Ruby, who started skateboarding, and she was pretty fearless, and there's she's just started in the last few weeks, and um, there's something cool we do together. And she, do you skate? Yeah, I do, yeah. yeah. Um, I've sort of done it on and off throughout my whole life. Yeah, yeah. Um, but just in the last few months I've started skating again with my th- all of my three kids and my partner, Kylie, all skateboard now. So... Um, <laughs> But Ruby goes down this slope. She wants to go down this bank, and it's um it's pretty steep and fast. And I know what's going to happen, really. Um, you know, and she, but she's like insisting that she wants to do it, so she does it, and she hits the bottom, and she slams like really hard. And you um, knew, obviously, you knew that was going to happen. Well, I kind of knew. I didn't know for sure. Yeah, yeah. She's a very natural ability. Yeah. Um, of all the kids, she has like the most natural kind of physical ability. Um, it was been the same with skiing. Anyway, she does it. She's wearing pads and she's got helmet and pads and everything on mm. and she slams. And um, I was like, whoa. But I don't want to like, you know, like she needs to, like she won't be able to ride down that slope unless she goes down there and slams and then the next time she does it different. You know, I can't yeah, hold yeah. her hand down there. Um, can't read about them things, can you? No, no, you can't. And you can't really be told to sort of bend your knees, you know, yeah. as the transition changes at the bottom of the slope. Um, so... You know, I, I guess I'm like that. I, you know, like I'll, I, I don't want them to know that I'm kind of watching what they do either. Like I want it to be yeah, subtle. Yeah, just a, yeah, of course. I don't want to be a helicopter parent. I'm definitely not a helicopter parent. Yeah. Um, they need to find their own way. Um, and they want to be supported and guided, but not told all the time. Definitely. Yeah. And when I think about that, about the Scot- in Scotland and all them rivers, I, I, I always come to think the conclusion like, well, the, the crossroad of like, were they irresponsible or were they, were they very trustworthy and believed in me? And, I, and I, I don't know, I'm not sure, maybe... 
I don't think it's irresponsible. I think I really think it's you know like I feel like those lessons and those experiences as a child have led to my own success as an adult and being able to look after myself and be independent. Definitely. And really, um, I think it's enabled me to take responsibility for myself and for my actions. So are we losing? Do you think we might be losing We're that? at risk of losing it because, yeah. you know, you're just told so much, you know. Like even, in, in, you know, the amount that the schools communicate with the kids and with the parents, it's just really intense, you know. Um, my kids are all in public schools. and um, But even, you know, there it's like, wow, you know, yeah, you need to leave some room for children to think for themselves, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's very interesting. You could go super deep on that, really, you know, like eight-place trophies and and, yeah, and, exactly. and, and all that yeah. kind of thing. Sen- building a sense of entitlement in children Yeah, too yeah, young. exactly. Yeah. And, like, trying to be too, not positive, because, you you know, you want to be positive, and, right? You don't always win, you know. Yeah, like, exactly. Life is about, like, a series of you, massive losses as well. You know? Way more than you win. Yeah. Way more. You know, wins, that's why wins are so great, because well, you win. But you know what? With wins, like, I, like, derive no pleasure from them. Like, literally, like, uh, it's such a funny thing to say. I, I, I'm with I, you, honestly. I sound like maybe a little ungrateful, but um, it's not that I, I am grateful, but I, they, they just don't, they just don't have any meaning because you know, I didn't learn anything from it. When somebody's, when somebody tells you you're great, like, that that doesn't necessarily mean anything unless you're standing in front of them and you can see that what you, you did for them really meant something to them. That's nice, but I only ever learned really probably from criticize criticism and uh but particularly self-examination and self-criticism i'm my own worst critic i'm the toughest person on myself than anyone else yeah 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 it's yeah i've said it before about them the wins and the compliments and on a recent podcast about how literally it doesn't you know i don't feel any gratification from that it's really bizarre and, and I, I've always I've always also been on a bit of a journey about trying to find out why a little bit to be honest mm. about like you said there you know I liked your pavet and, I, and I'm really happy that you liked it but I'm not happy that I created it that 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 it, it's really bizarre like I don't feel like anything I, I expect that for myself I've said it before I expect me myself to be able to produce that like you know like I just yeah. do like I work hard at it and, and, and the process we go through and, and we make sure the consistency and da, 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 we do all them process and I expect that there's no like oh I'm great for doing that it's really bizarre it's, yeah, do you understand I mean, do you know what I mean yeah I do know and you know what's um, what is kind of what is always surprising is when people congratulate you for doing things that should just be base level expectations from any human you know um, yeah. <laughs> like, like doing charity work or or doing things that are good for your staff and you get celebrated for that. And that's like, um, I kind of, um, sometimes I think maybe our society is like kind of backwards, you know, like when that is like an exceptional thing where it, where it to the public it seems like an exceptional thing or exceptional behavior, but really it's just like base level behavior for common decency. Um, and, you know, it doesn't need to be celebrated. It just should be like what the expectation of, all of us in society are who want to contribute to a better community. Um, you know, it's not something that I, I do for personal gratification either. It's just like what I feel is like a base level, like responsibility as a business owner or a mentor to younger people or a leader in the community. I don't, you know, like these things that we work on and do, they just like, like what we believe in, you know, like we'd yeah. never do them for PR or for, any reasons of gratification ever I feel like that comes through as well to be fair okay do you, with you do you know what I mean I don't feel like it, it's ever 
uh, you're doing it for PR. I never feel like that. Do you know what I mean? I feel like it, it is always really genuine and just, you know, you're doing the right thing. That's how I do it. It definitely comes across as oh, that. Oh, thanks. You know? Yeah, it's a, that's that old saying, um, you know, about um, whether or not you, you know, you, you kind of care about your reputation or you, you care about your character. And so I've never kind of really cared about the reputation so much. I mean, hopefully my reputation would be in line with what my character is, but my reputation is something that I can't really control because it's other people's perception of me, but my character is who I really am. And so, like, I'm always trying to work on my character, never on my reputation, you know? So it's an internal thing. Um, and you're always, you're always not battling, but you're always you're self-analyzing on that and, 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 you know, reflecting on yourself to progress in that, in that aspect. Yeah, the, yeah, that's right. And I mean, you know, with reputation, you know, like um, it, it, it's just society's preconceived notions about who you are as a person. And, you know, it, that could be good or bad. And like I said, hopefully it's good. But um, I mean, I think, you know, you need to do a lot of bad things for it to be bad, probably. But, um, but I'm not concerned about that. I'm not concerned about my legacy or anything like that. Like I... You know, I'm just a human. I'm trying to live in the moment, and um, I just don't want to destroy people in the process. You know, like community or staff or um, family. Um, you know, and it's it's a challenge. You know, yeah, because when you're a creative person, you know, you go deep, um, and you've got to be self-aware about you know when you go deep, like who will follow you, and what depth will you make them go to a lot just by being you. You know, so yeah, I yeah. think there's a there's a level pushing of, relationships. Is that what you're saying? Like, well, with, like and you know, like let's do this crazy idea. Let's do it now, and that's me. You know, like uh, and let's like research it and let's go off on this tangent. But we all so have to do all this other stuff. You know, and, yeah, yeah. And so you know, you can just go really deep rather than so, sometimes I just need to like calm down and say, okay, this is this is the idea that I've had, and we need to make a plan of how we're going to do it. Rather than just jumping into it right now because I'm super pumped about it, you know, <laughs> like um, whatever it might be. I mean, you know, like last night, for example, we went and my partner Kylie and I went and met with the artist Toby Poller, um, who's a sculptural artist. He carves um, he carves things out of a solid piece of timber, but they they are unbelievable. They, he carved like I have one of his artworks, and it's a, um, a thrasher. Uh, sweatshirt from the 1980s um, yeah. so it hangs on the wall on a coat hanger and it's like 3D big life-sized thrasher um, skateboarding you know sweatshirt and it it hang from Melbourne he's a guy from Melbourne yeah he's Melbourne based yep um, and uh, he's an exceptional talent and anyway um, it, I have this this thrasher jersey and I hang it in my office and People, most people who aren't like you know very in tune with their surrounds, they they look at it and they think, "What a weirdo! He's got like a thrasher, an old thrasher jersey hanging on the wall," because it is really amazingly lifelike. Oh, it looks exactly it like it looks just like oh one. My and ninety percent of people that come in the office look at it and don't even like say anything. And I'll have to point it out to them because I'm really proud of it and I love it. <laughs> and um, and um, and but then the others will, you know, the other people will, um, they will. Um, they will like be blown away by it, and that's, that is kind of my people that observe it, you know. Um, but what I'm getting to is, that, you know, we went to visit him last night, and on the way there, we had an idea for like a new piece of art for Attica, which would be like a dryer bone jacket that hold that he would sculpture out of solid wood, um, and it would hang on the wall. And then we're talking about him, and he was talking to him, and he's like, "Well, you now we could do a pair of boots, so I could sculpture a pair of boots that sit underneath the jacket." And I'm like, well, we could do an Akubra hat, but maybe that's too tacky. 
And then we just want to like kind of hang it like in the corner somewhere, this piece of art. And most people will think that we just left a dryzer bone jacket hanging on the wall, which I think is kind of funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but some woke people will understand that it's an art installation, you know, and that's the people that kind of do that stuff for, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah, but that's just like a very small like like – you know, yeah, yeah. Micro percentage of how deep, like how quickly I, I'm prepared to go. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> like, we're off. Yeah, yeah. yeah like, like it's, whoa, I'm whoa, exciting. Whoa, I love that. Yeah, it's all yeah, like yeah, high yeah. passion and um. Yeah, it's amazing. Know, but you just try to travel through that with some sense of um, other people and self awareness. Um, yeah, but otherwise, you you know, if you go too deep, you can destroy people and hurt people mm. um, with your own passion, unintentionally for sure. But yeah, yeah, you just have to know that. Man, not everybody is like you know, um, you know, is prepared to kind of go go, go like that. But yeah, yeah. but chefs and hospitality workers are yeah, like but, almost without exception. And so you know, yeah, it's so true. It really is. It is. And if you if your leader is standing there and going, people, we need to do this and you know, let's go. And they will be all like, yeah, but you'll be like, oh, hang on a second, like that's too many hours, you know, yeah, like, or, yeah, or yeah, whatever, yeah. you know, that the, the working day is long enough already. Okay, let's plan it and do it like, you know, Break it down. sustainably. Yeah, yeah. sustainably. Yeah, 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 exactly. Just going back into, you, you know, you, 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 brought, you were born or brought up in a rural area in New Zealand, right? Like you yeah. said, um, how, how much of an aspect do you think that plays in your food? It's and, huge. It's yeah. the biggest defining influence. Mm. Um, I grew up in Taranaki, um, and all around the areas that I grew up were evidence um, of the of the English Maori land wars. And you know, we lived um, in an area. Which where I keep getting told we got beat. Did we? Did it, is that well? They, 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 they pretty friends. much. I mean, they got like the, the Maori. Uh, pretty much, yeah, kicked English <laughs> yeah. to the curb, yeah, and exactly. um, and uh, and had and the English had to negotiate with the Maori, and that's where the Treaty of Waitangi was formed, and, oh. and so that gave Maori sovereignty. I mean, they didn't really need sovereignty because they already had sovereignty over their sovereign lands before yeah, the English came, but. Yeah. Um, the same situation here with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. They never ceded sovereignty here. but So their sovereignty, their original sovereignty from 231 years ago still remains. You know, um, yeah. We just don't understand that as a society. But when you've been somewhere for 65,000 years, then um, you know you don't need to cede sovereignty, yeah, do, yeah. do you? I we're mean, here. the land was stolen yeah, from them. Yeah, but exactly. Yeah, we're here. We're still here. We've been here forever. Always will, always, 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 always will be. Yeah. yeah. Um, but in New Zealand, um, those connections to, you know, Maori culture are very close. We had pa hill forts um, around the area that we lived in, in the country that we lived in. My father is a very, my mother and my father are both very woke people, and my mother spoke um, some Maori growing up. She was a school teacher. We learned Maori language in school from a very young age. You know, Maori and Pakeha and society are very connected, and it's not like we. You know, Pakeha, I'm a Pakeha, I'm a white person. That is that what that means? Yes, that's what, what? that means. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So non-Indigenous in New Zealand is Pakeha. Yeah. And, um, and then, but did you ever feel like, you know, you were on their land or did you ever, did you feel welcome? We feel we share the land, you know. Yeah. Uh, and and the, the thing is, is that, you know, the legislation and everything in New Zealand is so different to, it is, to what it is in, in Australia. And in New Zealand, while the situation is not perfect for Maori people at all, there's still two higher rates of in proportion disproportionate rate of maori people and in, incarcerated in prison and but actively the government has um well maybe you know through pressure of the public too has has given 
significant amounts of land back and continues to. And I'll give an example like this, and the differences between the countries are so profound in this way. I was walking down the street with my father in New Plymouth, Taranaki, it's the main town in the area that I'm from, on on their street, and there was a name, there was a vacant house. And on the street that my parents live on, you know, all the houses are owned and people live in them. And um, I said, oh, what's happening with that house? And Dad said, well, that was, um, that was a police house. Um, he said, well, that, you know, when new police officers would come to the town, that's where they'd exactly. live with their family. But recently that's been put in the land bank. And I said, oh, what does that mean? And he said, well, that's been put in the land bank and that will be given to a Maori family to live in. It will be their house to own and it will be their land. And that's part of, you know, settlement in the treaty. And, yeah. um, and I was like, wow. And I talk, you know, on the flip side over here, I talk to my Indigenous friends um, about that story and they're like, well, we never heard anything like that here. That never happens. And, um, and so, um, I mean, you know, there's a very long and huge yeah. subject. I mean, you know, Aboriginal people are not recognised in the Australian Constitution. In fact, the Australian Constitution still has um, parts of it that are discriminate against um, First Nations people. So we're, we're not living in a fair society here um, in regards to indigenous, our Indigenous First Nations people at all. It's not nice, though. No, and so coming from New Zealand, it was like, wow, you know, like Maori culture is like amazing. We can celebrate it. Pakeha and Maori alike. I feel like genuine pride about it as a child. You know, I learned how to do a hungi, which is a traditional cookery method, um, like an earth oven of the Maori. And that Did you was, replicate a, a potato dish of? Yeah. yeah. So that, that whole like history of that, um, you know, is an ancient method of cooking. And it's something that I learned. I think I did my first one when I was about 10 by myself. Um, but it was like what we did for, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't wait long enough and the potatoes <laughs> and the hungry were raw, but I was pretty happy anyway. I used bricks cause I couldn't get river stones. And, um, but, um, you know, hungry was like 21st birthday party was oh. like school fate. It's like, it's very regular. Like, would be yeah, regular. Oh yeah. Regular in community, oh, yeah. non-indigenous and indigenous. And, um, and you know, uh, the traditional meeting place for Maori is called a marae and this was like somewhere we would go and there was a marae down the road from our house and and would be mixed and all, yeah, you, you, yeah, 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 yeah 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 absolutely completely yeah. like um, you know I don't use the word integrated but because that makes it feel like you know that that culture is being watered down but that's not the case it's just something that we celebrated and look acknowledgement in New Zealand is everywhere from uh, look my a friend um, and really influential Australian, Bruce Pascoe, who's a Boonarong man and who wrote the book Dark Emu, who's somebody that we've collaborated with um, over the years and an amazing Australian. He said to me once, like the first time that he went to um, New Zealand on a trip with some of his Indigenous brothers, they could not believe when they arrived in Auckland Airport the acknowledgement of First Nations culture in New Zealand. They were like, wow, Maori language everywhere, Maori art everywhere. English and Maori language signs, they just, he said it nearly made him cry, you know. And yeah. um, I was like, wow, you know, when you arrive into Australia, what do you see? You don't see that, do you? No, you do not. No. And I think that's like, you know. You might see like a token flag or something these yeah, days. Yeah, or, I mean? or, yeah, some little councils bit. put up like some token little sign about whose land you're yeah, on, but yeah. really like this not proper acknowledgement. I mean, probably the most sad, the saddest part of that for, for, for me is. As uh, a migrant to this country, and we we're all migrants here, yeah, unless exactly. we were indigenous, um, is that how, how little pride collectively we have as a country in this ancient culture and these 
wonderful people. And um, and if you start, if you're, you know, I, I would really encourage um, non-Indigenous Australians to begin their education. Um, and and that is as simple as reading books like Dark Emu by Bruce Casco and reading Anita Hess's um, book, um, Growing Up Aboriginal. And that gives um, non-Indigenous people some some tiny little glimpse about what it might be like to be an Indigenous person living in Australia. Because collectively, um, non-Indigenous people in this country need to start to acknowledge and understand Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture so we can collectively feel some pride in it. And because we will never move forward as a nation until we we start to learn and we start to um, recognise the terrible past beginning 231 years ago um, and all of the layers of that and how that how that has affected our, our First Nations people. Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. It's, it's such a big issue really, you know. It, it really is. The, it, yeah, I couldn't, I, I could never describe it in such an eloquent way as yourself, so it, it, but I, I totally agree. And I think the, the, the Prime Minister of New Zealand should run the world in my view. Yeah, I agree. That yeah, lady is off the chart. <laughs> she is just the greatest. I could, like yeah, the way she's she, a true inspiration. Oh, she really is. I couldn't believe it. Like, I think she... I can't believe the way she handled the Christchurch situation, the way no. that she handles the having giving birth and still managing to, to juggle everything you know, like she's just a real inspiration for sure yeah she's all grace and realism yeah grace and truth telling exactly. and yeah. no bull straight up yeah just exactly common sense highly intelligent obviously but but, but why actually, can't the leaders of this day and age look at her instead of being look overweight white rich men basically mm. looking at these and look and say look this is what people want you can see like we're all saying this is what we want yeah. like why can't people just step aside and like let the, the people that we want in and, and start making some real changes instead of just trying to bully everyone else down and suppress everyone and because they're scared that they're going to lose what's there what they think is theirs well that's an interesting thing you know that's an interesting idea in australia about losing what we classify as ours you know yeah um and it's not even yours. No, I know, and I think that you know, I think I think that that situation with our politicians and the political parties is you know, it's much deeper than just that. I think it, it goes right back to the the core facts of you know that sovereignty wasn't ceded here, that that this wasn't settled, this country wasn't settled, that it was invaded, and what that means is. Like I think practically for for everyday Australians, deep down, if they if they start to think, is that everybody knows here that the land that they're on was stolen and taken. Yeah. And you know what that means for us is, you know, when you have something that's beautiful and you love it, you know, a way of life, you know, the great Australian way of life, whatever you want to call it, you know, your acre, block, your section, your piece of land, your piece of paradise. When you have something that's beautiful, but you know that something bad happened in the past that, that, Maybe it wasn't directly your fault, but your ancestors or some, you know, for some reason you've ended up with this land. You know in your heart that because it was taken 231 years ago, it was taken illegally, wrongly, um, that it could be taken from you again. So you, so instead of like celebrating the life that you, the freedom that you have, you protect it, fight it, and yeah, and, you, and when yeah. you when you fight to protect something so intensely. It can change you and you can become bitter yeah. and you can actually kind of erode that thing that you love so much and you can damage it and harm it. And I think in, on some level that's what ha has happened here, you know, um, and you see that in our politicians when, when instead we're such a wealthy country, we talk about, you know, um, these scaremongering tactics are talking about 
people that want to come and have a better life here. Well, what would be wrong with people wanting to come and have a better life here? Like, you know, we, we close our borders. Like, we have so much to offer. Like, and, and you think about our, you know, our, risk, our um, rich migrant history. I mean, like, modern Australia has, you know, benefited so much from that. I mean, our food society... Without yeah, multicultural yeah, and all, absolutely. Exactly, without the ways of migrants, and myself being one of them, you know, yourself being one of yeah, them. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, you know, it would not be as great a place to live as it is, you know. Um, Definitely. So it's just perplexing to me that that's the stance that they take, you know. Like, it just doesn't seem um, very human to me either, you know. Like, just a, or kind. And I think, um, you know, I think here we're, you know, we're at some risk of losing who we are if we continue with these attitudes. Definitely. Know? Do you know who Graham Hancock is? No. He's an English like uh, reporter, archaeologist report. I don't know exactly, but he 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 has a, quite a lot of books about uh, age, ancient civilizations and a lot of evidence that, that there was an ancient civilization that was really progressive, not in the situation that we are like with plastic and things, but actually more along the lines of um, um, spiritual and being connected to the planets and hence why there's the pyramids and all these kind of things that we can't dis- describe and geographical things pointing to the, the, the true north. And on all these kind of things, but he made a great point. And then his his argument is there was a catastrophic disaster where a meteorite hit the Earth, not the dinosaurs, but hit the Earth and wiped out this civilization. But what that civilization, there's evidence to say that once this did it, when once this happened, the all, the, the ones that survived, it was over a thousand years, started migrating to like um, the Amazon and places that started trekking these over the Ice Age and all this as it melted and all the rest of it, the, the travel there. And the point I'm getting to is, and the reason they went, went there was because that's where like hunter-gatherers were and all this kind of thing. And the point I'm getting to is, if there was some sort of catastrophic disaster right now and we couldn't create food and we couldn't do this, that, and the other, it'd be very, it would be very fast. It'd be very interesting to see how fast people turned to the native people to say, we're stuck, help us out, mm. what's the way to survive? And all of a sudden, it would be, you know what I mean? They'd be begging for their help. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, we didn't listen in the first place, did we? You know, yeah, like exactly. We, you know, we um, there's a there's a art station out the back of uh, out the back of the restaurant at the moment, and it's sort of it's a vision of a post-apocalyptic world, which sounds a really dark thing to see when you come to a restaurant like this. But yeah. it's a humorous vision of a post-apocalyptic world, and it's the world in 2090. And um, there's a you know, I asked the artist to 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 paint to paint on the wall. Um, we should have listened. Yeah, exactly. Um, be, because in you know the, in the direction we're heading, we really we really should have, and in all ways we should have listened. And when I listen to um, you know Aboriginal elders, my friends speak on the situation with our coastlines and our fish. I mean, the way that um, if we'd listened to Aboriginal people when we came over here about when when the English came here, and if we'd listened to Aboriginal people about how about managing coastal resources, there's no way we'd find our situ- ourselves in the situation that we are in now. If we listen to Aboriginal people on how to manage the land, how to manage our, our bush, how to ma- how to manage um, the soil, there's no way we'd find our situa- ourselves in the situation we are in now. There's a lot of traditional knowledge, and slowly people are beginning to understand that this is of great value. Um, and um, but will it happen fast enough? You know, I yeah, know that that's my, a risk, isn't my, it? Yeah. Aboriginal friends don't think they're going to see positive change in their lifetimes. You know, it's an incredibly sad thing. You know, yeah, when yeah. I have a friend, Noel Butler, um, who's a Budawang man, a Yuan from 
um, sent, uh, sort of southern New South Wales, um, and he's the most amazing, uh, inspiring Australian, and the knowledge that he holds and the stories that he has. So, like, you know, he's in his late sixties, and wait, when he when he passes, eventually, hopefully not soon, whenever he does, those will that knowledge die with him? You know, and and what an incredibly great loss to our country if it if it if that happens. You know, um, yeah, yeah. he's one of only. Um, eight to ten people that still speak his language, you know, Um, and the guy has such insightful views and thoughts and knowledge on the way to look after the coast, the way to look after the soil. It's deep, uh, articulate and intelligent, Um, and um, it blows my mind that there's not just infinitely more strong interest in this in, in, in this knowledge and preserving it and protecting it for future generations. Once it's gone, it's gone. Well, it is, you know, like, I don't want my children to grow up ignorantly, you know, like, yeah, I want yeah. them to have, be informed about these things, about, you know, Aboriginal know-how. So Yeah, yeah, it's important that they, that they, do, that they do, and and hopefully that everyone's saying about that generation, you know, maybe even the next one, and I guess our kids are maybe, well, mine's only four, but hopefully they'll start having our, more of our attitude as opposed to that, you know, that more older... Well, I, do you know what I mean? And hopefully... I, I do think, though, that we're at risk of, like, saying, oh, well, don't... This gener- our generation's already too late, you know? Like, I don't believe that. Like, I believe that any generation can change their opinion on things, you know? Like, if they're presented with... Um, I mean, nobody likes to be told what to do for a start. So, you know, here when we're trying to educate people on things that we care about, we never say, you should do... We we always say, hey, this is how we did it, yeah. And hopefully that inspires people to to follow our lead and and go in that direction their own way. I mean, nobody can kind of you know you you can't be made passionate about something that you're not passionate about, you know. But but here we can light a spark or a little fire under somebody and give them a nugget of something, and you know whether it's just a, just a small taste of a food they've never seen that's indigenous or whether it's the Jampi Desert Weaver's basket that they've never seen before, and all of a sudden they start to realise, oh, I know nothing about I know nothing about the country that I've always lived in, mm-hmm. that my family has lived in for generations. You know, um, I know nothing about the true culture of my country, and that you know that can be a powerful thing. You know, but it's it, it's a it's basically providing the space to allow that to happen in a natural, and organic way, rather than lecturing people on it. We don't lecture on it. We we say you know. If we're going to cook with these ingredients and be inspired by this culture, we need to pay it forward and need to understand it and need to pass it on. Uh, we need to support Aboriginal makers and suppliers and growers. And and that's the base level expectation for working with these ingredients. If we don't do this work, we don't research the ingredients and understand where they come from, have some language and cultural context about them uh, that we can pass on to our guests then it's really just kind of this colonization thing continuing to happen and I don't want to be a part of that. Like I, I want to be a part of a future which which, you know, is is respectful to people and doesn't do further cultural damage. Yeah, yeah. amazing. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Um when did you decide to go to a, a fixed style menu? Um I think it was in about well, I started here in um two thousand and five, in August two thousand and five. And at the start, we were doing like um, breakfast, lunch, dinner. Here, yeah, in the- yeah, oh, yeah, really? yeah. We only had two people in the kitchen and two people on the floor, and I was one of the two in the kitchen. And um, we were working six days, and it was just a, um, we we're just absolutely sucking at everything we did, and um, you know, pretty much, like, it was just like <laughs> the worst restaurant. And breakfast is just like I have just no interest in cooking breakfast because. Um, 
you know, it's, I think we would like on a real, like we were never busy, but if we had an outrageously, by some random chance, 40 people decided to come here, you know, once every three months or something and you were busy, you know, you'd be under the pump and for the whole kind of morning day and then you'd look at the takings and 40 people spent 400 bucks and you're like, <laughs> damn, I can't even turn the lights on for that really, you know? Yeah, and, yeah. and so I think at some point, um, you know, I decided and I basically said to the ownership, you know, we have to roll the dice, you know? Like I think it was really like that. It was like, well, we're failing anyway. We're nearly going broke. We're nearly gone broke several times. This is not working. Let's just roll the dice and do something that nobody else is doing kind of wholeheartedly we'll just offer a tasting menu. There'll be no a la carte offerings. And people were offering tasting menus then, but they were offering a la carte as well. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm like, we can't offer a la carte as well because um, we don't have the labor force for it. It's wasteful. And we can perform the highest with just the single menu, no choices. So um, they've never had an a la carte restaurant here ever? No, they did. It was. Oh. But it was like... A, but was, af- sorry, was after, after the after breakfast, lunch and dinner situation? Yeah, basically at some point, and I can't remember exactly when that would have been, it might have been about three years in, I said, we have to just try to do it this way and, and everything else has to... It must fall away. We'd already started doing a tasting menu, I think, or offering it, but nobody was really taking it. And then... Yeah, I just said, look, you know, let's roll the dice. Let's just throw it all in the ring. Yeah. Well, it was it was failing anyway, so I, yeah. I thought, well, you know, we may as well go down um, in glory or something. <laughs> I don't know. Like, and and how long did it? To, you know, you don't change it round. Did, did you do a fit out, or did you literally just stop? No, know, we just, didn't. We couldn't just, do a fit out. Yeah, no, no, it was just broke, no yeah. money. Yeah. And then how how long did it take to start picking up a bit of, to picking up a bit of business from oh, there? Oh, I think it took about um, all told probably it didn't become really busy until, for about six years. So, Far out. so what year will that have been? That would have been about you know about two thousand and eleven or something oh, like that. Around. I come in two thousand and ten was the first time I ate here. Oh, really? Yeah. Ah, that's cool. Yeah, two thousand ten. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, I never, I never knew who, where this was. I come from England, and you know all this, and I, I moved to Sydney, and I met a guy called Hazel. I don't okay. know if you. Know. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He's yeah. a sous chef here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's so, a great guy. Yeah, yeah. I, and um, I was doing a six months at Key, and he come to Key for a short period of time. Yep. And he, and I met him, and he was telling me about here, and then we flew to Melbourne, and we ate here yep. for the first time. It was okay. amazing. Yeah. Did you eat with him? Did you? No, no, I didn't. I no, ate no, I just me you, and my wife. Yeah, yeah okay. just me and my wife ate here, and uh, we had um, probably one of the, the best desserts I've ever, at that time. It blew my mind. Not even now, it would blow my mind. It was, it was the, the violet crumble, I think. Oh yeah, yeah, in the glass. Yeah, yeah, that was that was phenomenal. I, that was amazing. And also there was a. Um, well, that's, so a, that's a Melbourne thing. Yeah, that, that, I mean that violet crumble is a Melbourne invention. You know, there's a, yeah. a whole story like if, you know I don't know if you know that that story about that bar that candy bar. No, it's like a crunchy, right? It's like a crunchy, similar. And um, the the gentleman I'm trying to think of um, the gentleman's name who just I should I'm so bad with names, but oh. um, so anyway, um, he was like a you know like a real like mover and shaker um, in terms of making confectionery at the time. And he's actually, he, he actually built a bridge across the Yarra because he lived on the wrong side <laughs> of his factory. Anyway, to cut a long story short, the violet crumble, is his wife's favourite flower was a, was a violet. Yeah. So he designed the wrapper around that. And, but when he first made the violet crumble, he used to sell them in boxes loose. Mm. And, um, of course, that honeycomb um, centre would go soft Soggy, and chewy. Yeah. yeah. And so, along with 3M, he helped invent that foil wrapper that is now on all candy, like all candy oh. bars. So that was him. Um, and his factory was sort of off Smith Street there. I can't remember. I, I really, it's a really famous name. Yeah, and yeah. Anyway, his 
when we first put that dish on that you had um, generations of his family came in there to check it out. Like, oh, serious? Yeah, yeah. And did no, they give no you the seal of Yeah, they gave, it, gave us the tick, but I was yeah. quite concerned about it because I was like, man, Definitely. that's like a, such an iconic thing that I'm messing with. And imagine if they didn't like it, but they loved it. So it, yeah, when it was I, cool. It was an amazing. It was, And I've heard you say that once things have gone, they never come back. No, they don't. And I was like, oh. Oh, well, it's just a memory now, you know. And we also had a, a pigeon dish with licorice oh, and yeah, yeah, smoked beetroot puree, if I remember rightly, and yeah. like a crispy onion, I think it was, I yeah. think, if I remember Yeah, right. onion rings, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. With the bit. And I've actually, when I looked at your book, I've seen a similar, but it's with a different garnish, if I, if I remember yeah. right. It's with a celery garnish in the book, I think. Yeah, yeah probably. And, you know, it, it's so funny when people talk to me about meals that they have hair care because I don't remember the dishes. Yeah. Like, I don't remember, like, the, the past because, like, Literally, like you I'm always yeah, in the yeah. future. The amount of um, dishes you're probably creating and things as well. Yeah, there's been thousands and yeah. thousands of dishes here, and um, and like probably you know ninety percent of those were like or more um, were sort of epic fails. But um, but um, yeah, I never like um, I forget what we we done, and I haven't really documented it either. And I think it's probably on the hard drive on the computers. But um, but it's always funny. Like I remember Matt Preston came uh, last time he came was four or five years ago, and. He um, talked about strawberry. We had a strawberry dish on the menu, and um, he's like, "Ah, oh, that's like the eighth strawberry dish that I've eaten in ten years." Um, he said, and he's like, "The first one was like this, and the second one was like this, and the third, and so on and so on and so forth." And I was like, "Whoa, man! I don't even remember like those dishes. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, like yeah, you're yeah. blowing my mind." But it's funny when when I was looking through the book, I um. I seen that the, that pigeon dish with the licorice. So I was like, oh yeah, pigeon dish with the licorice. I remember that. And then I was like, hang on a minute, that wasn't the garnish with it. And I was flicking through. And then you did later on in the book, you do or earlier in the book, you do a a smoked beetroot juice, I think it is, or a smoked beetroot something in the book. Okay. It is. And um and I was like, oh maybe that. And I was just trying to think in your like I say, I've been studying the last few weeks. I was thinking I was just trying to work. I wonder if you went, oh, yeah, that juice works well with the speak the root and the smoke and I'm just going to kind of you know what I mean just develop that dish I wonder if it would just, anyway it's just yeah. me thinking about how maybe how your head works a little I wouldn't it would, uh-huh. couldn't, I wouldn't want to get in there to be honest with you uh, <laughs> in a positive yeah, way it's funny you know people ask how you come up with things and you don't really know I just say I always say really hard work you yeah, know I, I would say imagine. really dedicated to it you know I um, could imagine I heard that you said sometimes it takes up to 150 different combinations to get to the to the the, 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 the wow moment let's yeah, say yeah it can um, it can take um, months and months and I mean it has taken years we don't do that anymore we don't take years anymore um, but um, you know we have quite a big creative team as well there's you know there's eight cooks in the creative team and um, so that like, is that on this site we're at the restaurant yeah now. we, work, we yeah. work amongst ourselves yeah um, we did we built a test kitchen that was actually the first one that we built and then we built um, a test kitchen on the site next door probably about seven years ago and so we had this kitchen which was purely for development but it started to it it was good for about a year and i worked in there with a sous chef um and so just the two of us but what it did is it cut us off from everybody else and so none of the young cooks or none of the other cooks who had to make the food were seeing how the food was kind of invented yeah and that didn't feel very nice they were and just so, almost robotic um, do you know what i mean just yeah well you just involved it'd become fully formed then we yeah. say hey here are these go. guys and they're Please like okay this. well they can replicate it but they have yeah. no idea about yeah, yeah. the way it cre- it's created and therefore like it was concerning me about how they travel through life after here and how they would become you know, head chefs and sous chefs themselves and how, how were they going to do it for themselves in business? And I'm really conscious of how my staff going to 
go in business in the future. I want them to go well in business and I want them to better their lives. So I'm responsible for providing some of those skills. And the younger you start on that kind of creative journey or that journey of designing things yourself, the better. And so now we just do amongst everybody. So like it's, you know, components of a dish are being, you know, made by people in three or four different kitchens, you know, all, on any given day. So, you know, um, a young um, a, a young commie can be watching, I hate that word, but a young chef can be watching next to a senior chef who's preparing something and ask questions and and learn or they might be doing it themselves in some small way. So, Or might even just hear you talking. Yeah, it was like everybody could see yeah, yeah. Matt and I, who's our head chef, plate something up at the end of the day to try and if they're around, they'll get a taste. So... That's kind of the idea is that it's just a little more open and bringing more people into the creative process has been really empowering as well in the past year. So I used to kind of just do it with one other person. Now it's better to share it. Yeah, yeah definitely. Sharing's definitely the go, isn't it? The um, I know you said you didn't... Well, I think you've answered the question just, but I just want to just clarify. You said you didn't... You don't log it. You don't store all that information, like the changes. How like, And when you do say you do the changes, is it like... 10 grams of this, five grams of that, 10, four grams be. of this, six grams of that. And then how do you, how do you like know oh, we've done that one? We did 10 and three. Do you know what I mean? Like um, no point going back doing 10 and three again if you've already done it three weeks ago. Yeah, I mean, sometimes there is a bit of going back and going forward and going mm. back. Like some, honestly, I mean, it, well, we're, I work in a kind of intuitive way. Um, and I know it's not being very um, clear. I'm not like, I mean, I write often, most of the time I write the recipes myself and then, so I'll develop the recipe, I'll write it, and I'll make the thing for the first time, and then I'll pass it off to somebody who is going to actually be able to fine-tune it to do it for 63 people every night. And um, yeah, yeah. so I don't I do not do the part where I have to work out how to make it for 63 people. My team does that. But, oh. I'll, but, I'll, but I'll still come up with, you know, the kind of the concept of it and the, often the recipe or part of the recipe. And I... I I do need to be able to continue to do that. I need to have my hand in the pot, if you like, because yeah. um, you know I have a very unique way of doing things, and um, and it's and it's my kind of my personality. And while there are the personalities of a lot of other people involved as well, they're trying to think in my way. Um, and um, so we write, we do write recipes, and we make improvements to them. Sometimes we go back, and sometimes we'll just sit on something for a month and not do anything with it because. It sort of wasn't it. It wasn't good, and you just need to give yourself some breathing space. It's like if you um, taste too many wines, for example, you like by the end of it, you're like, oh man, I've no idea what any of these wines taste like, and I need yeah. to take a day off and come back to tasting these wines the next day. Yeah, uh, yeah. The food is not really any different. You can take a bit more, but um, oh yeah, also there's also like appropriate times to be working on them and tasting them as well. I know it sounds weird, but it's it can be quite. When we're finishing dishes, I'll often prefer to be finishing them in the morning because I'm I'm up, I'm I'm brighter, I haven't eaten as much, my palate is clear, they're tasting better to me. If I've gone through a day in the kitchen where I've tasted a whole heap of stuff and then at five o'clock we're starting to work on a dish, I might just be in like a slightly negative mindset and it might it just might not be delicious to me at all. I mean not outwardly negative, but but I could just be super like dehydrated. Yeah, dehydrated or tired or yeah, yeah. Ah, I'm not really into it. It's you know, like there's heaps of stuff going on. Yeah. Um so I think it's better when we're finishing dishes to actually finish them in the mornings, which yeah. sounds I've found. You know, we're just clearer. Yeah. Um That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um so um 
Yeah, I mean, but that that is a frustrating thing. But we all, but we're always working towards like finding this uniqueness. You know, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to find something that's going to make somebody smile. You know, um, sometimes we're working to find something that will like provoke them as well. Um, but ultimately, like the goal here, and maybe it's a little bit different than a lot of other fine dining restaurants, is that we want it to be really delicious. So deliciousness is absolutely an underrated commodity in in, in, in ambitious restaurants. Um, and I really think, to, if I'm being honest, that our food is not that different to home cooking. That's a really weird thing to say. But <laughs> but, but where's the most delicious food you ever had in your life, right? Yeah, like yeah, it's yeah. at home, Coming, coming man. in after playing football or whatever. Yeah, it's like that lasagna that you just like was so good. Like, And there's a, there's a whole heap of other things at play that are making you feel that way about it. Yeah, like yeah. it was your mother that made it or, you know, it was your birthday or um, it was unexpected. You had it in this restaurant that nobody had told you about that looked really shitty and then you went in there and you had the lasagna and it blew your mind. Yeah. Um, so there's a whole psychological thing going on, but we want... Definitely. Um, it's that whole thing of like being on holiday and having that wine, buying a case of it, taking it home and it's horrible when you get home. It doesn't taste the same. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Oh, it happens yeah. all the time, right? Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, so food is like, like that too. And But what we're trying... We're trying to like make it like as delicious as home cooking, um, but we but obviously we want it to be something that's very personal to us and something that's quite thought provoking and something that makes you think, oh, like I wish I'd thought of that, you know, like I like that as well, yeah, you know, yeah, that's yeah. kind of fun, you know, like uh, and and seeing people different people's reaction to what you do is really cool, like watching them every night is really such a um, we never can forget like how fortunate we are to have sixty three you know, generally insanely excited people to come into the yeah. to the dining room. But also with incredibly high expectations. Now, the expectations is something that I don't care about. Yeah. I've like, it's so that, funny, yeah. eh? Like, uh, I just don't, like, I, it's not that I don't care about, I absolutely care about the customers, but I, the ex, I cannot worry about their expectations yeah. because it just tie in knots. And so I feel like, you know, like for me, I set a higher expectation for myself than they ever could. And uh, there's no level of arrogance in that. It's just that, man, I've been doing this since I was 10. Yeah. Like, this is what I do, you know? Like, yeah, yeah. I don't go to the garage and tell the dude with the car, like, how to fix the car. Like, I wouldn't know. Like, I appreciate his individual skills. Like, he's the man, she's the woman, whatever. Like, yeah. but here, like, this is my this is my life's work here, you know? Like, this, we're not mucking around, you know? Like, <laughs> like we're very serious about our life's work, you know? Yeah, like, yeah, um, yeah. And so there's an intention, you know, and, and there's a desire from everybody that works here um, to absolutely do the right thing. So the expectation, it's, it's like reputation. I can't, like, control that. Um, all I can control is my own level of output, you know, like, and how high it is. And the desire is to always, always be better. Um, and so the only kind of feedback that I kind of ever listened to was if somebody says it was better than the last time I came, that's good feedback because kind of that's that's what I that's what I'm looking for. Yeah, yeah. But I'm never going to rest on that. Like I can't accept that 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 the level is okay. Or like there's always ways. Like this morning, working on you know this like very difficult situation where we have read all water glasses and like we have no relationship with you know a glass company from a different country. You know, so uh, what are we going to do? Like, and that's been on my mind for probably three you years. You want to change it to a local or something? Yeah, we want to. Yeah, yeah, we want to. We want a local maker to make it, but it's hard. Like, you know, there's not a lot of glass blowers. So, yeah. Um, but we're going to use something else. And but then you know, like there's this whole thing. Well, you know, when water is in a glass, 
the front of house staff can see very easily if they need to top it up. So if you use like a dark. ceramic, if it's yeah, dark, you yeah, can't yeah. tell. Yeah. So or all the flooring and yeah, yeah, that action of like me changing the glass could have like a detrimental impact. You know, particularly if like the glass was ever dry, which it should never be. You know, yeah, like yeah. in a pro- professional restaurant, you should always have water in your glass. And um, and so yeah, you know, so it's like working things out. You know, like it. Yeah. You've got to think of all scenarios, right? You've yeah, got yeah. There's like a, a re- there's some you know you 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 make an action and there's a reaction and it could be positive or negative, you know. Yeah. Um, and sometimes you just do it, even if you can see some negative, you do it because the the positive will be greater, you know. Um, whether rest, music is like that, you know, like uh, I write the playlist here. Do I'm you? incredibly passionate about music. Yeah, man, there's probably a lot of music on that playlist that people don't like, but I I really like it and I think you know like again like. Music's been my lifelong passion. I know a lot about it, and um, and so I like. I feel like I'm qualified to make that playlist. You know. Do you feel like this is a little bit? Um, it's definitely. Well, obviously, it is. It's your restaurant. It's like a gallery of you. Yeah, kind of. I mean, hopefully not just of so me, just not of me though. But um, of you know of the yeah, of the country, well, the the it, region. It, the, well, the, it is. It's a it, it's a you know like it's kind of hot. I want to hold a mirror up to Australia in a way. You know, like um and what that means. I mean, it's so complicated. There's so many layers. You know, um my story is obviously an important part of that, but it's not the only story. We try to tell other people's story. I mean, the staff story. I mean, this is the United Nations of restaurants here. There's like always about 18 different nationalities here. So yeah, amazing. Yeah, um and we call Australia home and you know so i want that to be an influence you know the chinese people came to victoria six years after the first english settlers for example so it's not well known you know how huge their contribution to australian society is you know they were yeah. very poorly treated when they came out here um so i want to acknowledge that like you know like there's all kinds of things at play like there's all kinds of different inspirations there's all different layers even in this on this site that we're recording this podcast on you know there's there's like there's three like really main waves of people that have lived in Ripponley through time, you know. So we want to acknowledge that we're in a predominantly Jewish community, you know. We're proud of that. Like it's an awesome community and it should be celebrated, you know. Like um, and so and we want to learn about that. Like um, so there's just so many different directions, so many ways to go, and we want to know about all of them. Um, so research is like <laughs> you must do a lot. Do you do a lot? Of yeah, it? yeah, it's it's it. Well, it's it. It's incredibly important, but it's also really powerful because knowledge is, you know, like, like it's a great um, kind of well, a lack of knowledge is a great inhibitor, you know. But yeah. if you have, if you know things, if you're woke to stuff, um, then you can do things. I can't stand hearing people talk about stuff they don't know about. Like, <laughs> I'm not going to, I'm not going to go there myself, you know. Yeah, but yeah. so that's why I say, like, you know, people's expectations. Well, you know, in all good conscience, they they don't know about as much about what we're doing as as we do now we we need to be able to tell it to them in a story that makes sense you know with the food and stuff like if we, if we're doing a bad job if our um articulation is not really strong and clear you know like in terms of our intention like I'm not even talking about what we say with our with yeah. our mouths I'm talking yeah, yeah. about what we do with our actions, actions yeah, yeah. Actions and some we don't always words. get that right you yeah, know like yeah, yeah. but um but ultimately um it comes down to like um you know, I think you'll like it if you know what quality is. You know, and I think that I think you know if you don't like um, our um, if you don't like our vision for a restaurant, that's okay. But um, but it's pretty hard to say that it's poor quality. Yeah, um, yeah. So that's kind. Of, it's not for everybody. You know, yeah, like yeah, and 100%. and and we've got better at um, basically communicating that to people because um, you know I think there was a 
we've recently rebuilt the website completely and it's just a website people would say well actually it's the first like part of the experience and and so coming onto the old website it wasn't clear about you know a very old website and things had changed here over you know 10 years so it wasn't clear the website wasn't clear about who we are yeah and so building a new website we're able to basically simplify it and say because you'd see occasionally you'd see people here and not often, but we'd you'd see people here, and you just see they were hating it, and just it broke my heart. In the experience, not in yeah, experience. yeah, no, just not yeah, like yeah. just that their their expectation was something completely different about yeah. what it would be. Their expectation that they're going to a traditional fine dining restaurant that they'd eat with cutlery and they'd be silver served, and yeah. here you have to eat with your hands for most of the meal. Um, and it's informal but professional service, and it's warm. Like you know, when I came to Australia, people were so welcoming, and they were like. I always felt like people wanted me here even before I had any reputation. And so I want that to be reflected in the service, you know, like it's a it's a great country like that. Um, but it's not like, yes, sir, yes, madame. It's not like that, you know. And so some people have, you know, that expectation that a, that a well-known restaurant that charges, you know, significant money for its menu will provide these kind of fine dining ticks like yeah. caviar and... Um, Foie gras. And foie gras. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And lobsters, man. I like carrots. Like you know, yeah, like yeah. I like indigenous ingredients. Like so, the website gave us an opportunity in a very simple way, and not in an arrogant way, but in kind of this is a, this is coming from kindness because I don't want to see somebody waste the money, waste their money, yeah, keep yeah. your money. I don't yeah, want yeah, your yeah, money. Yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah. Uh, go where you will enjoy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And here I could even write it down for you where where I think you would enjoy. It, you know, like um, <laughs> there's plenty of amazing restaurants that provide that kind of thing, and um, we're just not one of them. It's too singular. And so we try to articulate how singular it is. And we basically say, if you don't like this, this, and this, then maybe don't come because we love this, this, and this, and we believe in it. And that's the sort of restaurant that we are, you know. Um, Beautiful. Yeah. And Beautiful. it's just it's just about trying to be honest and try – like I don't – you know, like it's not a very money business, you know what I mean? Like it's – like I mean that's probably commercial suicide saying things like that and turning – trying to turn people off your restaurant. I've, but I've been thinking about that, about, you know, financially suicide. And obviously you are the brand here. You are you – know, well, obviously Attica's the brand, but you, you're you the man here, right? You take mm-hmm. you out the equation. It's You know, it's a big part of the equation that's gone. So ultimately, and I think I've heard you say it before, it's 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 not as sellable as it would be if you were. It's not you know, sellable it's at not all. It's not sellable at all. Yeah, exactly. it's a valueless business. Exactly. Like I didn't want you know. No, you. I know what you're, you're thinking, and yeah. you, you're in business, so you understand that. So, right? what, and what really what gets me. I'm sure you've had many offers, many offers for different people to, run, mm. and you see a lot of these big chefs right the opening bistros and serving steak and chips for $55 and that's like the funnel to, to put money into this do you know what I mean mm. but you've, you haven't you haven't done that how have you managed to stay so focused and humble in this space and not be tempted by them kind of ways well I, I think when I was younger I saw people you know in the industry doing that and I've said it before, but I think it's one of the saddest things to see somebody have such great success from their first business or whatever, from a business, and then to quickly expand into other businesses and erode like what brought them the success in the first place. It just, uh, it just makes me. It honestly makes me sad. And um, and I'm like, I'm ne- I, was, I said to myself when I was probably 18, I'm never going to be that guy. Like, you know, like, and I come from like a punk and skateboarding background. DIY background and I watched all those great bands in the 80s like 
write fanzines and self-publish and connect with their fans in a really humble way. And and so there's a part of that which is influenced here as well. Um, and we work with like, you know, farmers and harvesters and artists and we work, you know, Attica has 2,300 suppliers across the board. I mean, that includes plumbers and everybody, but that's yeah, yeah. like the group of people that's the that could list. contribute across a year yeah. to to this place. Yeah. And, um, and almost n- none of those people are like millionaires or probably none of them. I, I can't really think of any that are... I'm not aware of that. Not that that would. Not that that is anything to be ashamed of. Being becoming wealthy, it's kind of how you handle yourself. But yeah, so it, it's just such a like. It's kind of like an art project, you know. Like it's like it's almost not like a business, you know. And that yeah. sounds ris- no, it. R- ridiculous. It 100 percent is a business, but <laughs> um, but but in terms of like, I'm never like I know how to. I need. I know how to read the the profit and loss sheet the monthly, and you have to know how to do that. If you're in business, man, you've got to be on that. Like, but I have incredible people who look after that side of things because yeah. it's not my strongest interest. And whether or not like the food is like three percent higher this month than it is last month. Oh. <sighs> We didn't waste anything, you know, like <laughs> that was what it cost to make it. And yeah, that's yeah, what it will yeah. cost to make it. I'm not concerned. Like yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's just got to be that because that's the level of product that I want. And it doesn't matter if it erodes into two or higher percentage of the total cost of goods, you know, like it yeah, just yeah. doesn't, it doesn't matter. Um, so, it, yeah, it, it, I think to kind of answer your question, I'm kind of getting away from your question, it's but um, it's not to say that I won't ever open another business. But Do you think you will? Uh, it's hard to see it right now. Um, but you know, you said you've got that big list. You know, if you did have a look, I'm not trying to yeah, culture it anyway. Anyway, but you know, everyone else from that list could you know you could have a really successful 200 seat restaurant. You know, probably doing really well. And maybe I could, or maybe I could have a massive headache that doesn't work as well as this. Mm. And it it. It, yeah. I mean, look, there's a few people that do it. And Andrew McConnell is one of them. Like, yeah. oh my God, you know, like, he does it so well. He's the best at it, you know, like, um, and even like, I don't want to get off topic onto Andrew, but Andrew's a close friend and I worked, I was his sous, junior sous chef years ago. And I saw him go from running a, a similar restaurant to this to becoming the restaurateur he is. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, I oh, mean, so Dining Room 211, oh, the first okay. one, yeah, you know, okay, it's like yeah. the smallest, most personal chef run restaurant with his brother and his partner. And, um, anyway, um, like he has like an, a unique skill. I don't know if I have that skill, yeah. you know, like I know what my skills are, like kind of, um, but I do think that this restaurant has been set up in a sustainable way and this, this business and, um, and an ethical way. And I, and I absolutely feel like I could apply my business standards and knowledge to another business. It's just the idea and the urge to do it. Yeah. I like being here every day. Like, yeah. If I have another business, I can only be here half the time. Maybe that's fine. It probably is fine. It it is fine, in fact, because my team, you know, forty two full time employees, does it every day anyway. Like whether I'm here or not, like they literally do it. You know, it's like the journalist years ago asking Joel Robichon, 
who cooks um, when you're not in the kitchen? And it's the same people that cook when I'm in the kitchen, you know, like, and it's true of any good restaurant, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah. I'm here today. It's a fact. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. I'm here today, but I'm talking to you. I'm not cooking right now. I will be cooking later. Yeah, that's what you're trying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but that's a really good business. Like, that's a proper business, you know. Like, it can't be just about you. And um, so, yeah, I think I could do another business, but I'm kind of tight-lipped about I have ideas for sure, but... I'm I'm the sole owner. I don't have any investors. Yeah, um, that's a recent thing. Is it? Is that right? Yeah. That so I bought thing? it um, four years ago yeah. outright. Well, so recent, but yeah. yeah, it is recent, yeah. man. This is a four-year-old restaurant, and yeah. um, and how do things change after? For, everything for, changed. Really? Yeah. Everything. Yeah. Everything has changed. Every single thing. I mean, there's some probably some original plumbing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah. every like you know philosophically, um, environmentally, um, responsibly, um, practically, physically. I've yeah, renovated the whole thing pretty much. We're sitting in the new dining, newest dining room. Um, yeah, yeah. It's just, you know, I pour the profits back into the business. You know, I put it back into my people and back into the business. Yeah. And that's how I like to do it because that's how, how it gets better. Before... I, I to- can I just say I totally agree on that. I 100- Pouring everything back in is the only way. If, you, if you're there for the long haul, yeah. you're there yeah. for the marathon and you're not there for the sprint... That's the only way to do that. I mean, you're absolutely right. And you know what? In the last four years, I could have totally stripped all the money from this place and let it die slowly. Yeah. Like, and let, and then maybe it would go on beyond this year for a couple more years. But people are not stupid, you know? Like, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, you They'll know. See. Yeah. Like, people generally don't complain to me about the value of the restaurant. It's yeah, good value yeah, to come yeah, here. Yeah, and yeah. I say that knowing that I'm charging $295 for a menu. Yeah, but unless you know like what goes into it and the exactly. costs, how it feels, I mean, you know, it's not expensive. I always say that. You're like, it, yeah, it's, a lot no of, it's a lot of outside. money. There's no Ferraris. No, man, I don't drive yeah, a Ferrari. Exactly. I don't even own a car. Like I have a sponsored <laughs> car, thank goodness. You know, yeah, yeah. like, um, it, I don't, you know, I don't own a house. So it, it's like, um, it, so, I, but I don't do that. I have enough to live on. I have a great life. Like I have no complaints. Like yeah, yeah. I have an amazing life. I'm blessed. Um, and I'm grateful. And I just don't want to do it that way. Like that was how it was done under the old ownership. And and so for my, you know, it's been rebuilding this business from the ground up. And that's cool because in some ways I started a new restaurant when I owned it. And I needed to learn that. I needed to go through that process, you know. Did it give you a little lift as well, would you say? Huge. It was yeah. the culmination, you know, of my career. Like it was a it was so absolute high. How old have you been then? Uh, well, I'm, I've just turned 40, um, 42. So, yeah, 38. 38. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I never thought it would happen. Uh, I never thought, you know, I'm, I'm a typical chef. I never thought I would have the capital, the money to get it. I scraped in every last cent that I had. Um, I, you know, it cost me a lot of money to buy it. It wasn't a gift. Um, a lot more than you'd think. And um, and but to me, I was weighing up. You know, I didn't want to start again. You know, like I don't. I I wanted to buy it because did I it put take so negotiation? Oh yeah, months and months, like eight months of negotiations. Did the did the partner want to leave or not? Yeah, he wanted did, to leave. Oh, he wanted he to sell it. Did but, he come uh, to you and say, "I'm going to sell this restaurant"? Basically, yeah, it's a bit more complicated than that. But yeah, yeah. but um, yeah, yeah, but um, yeah. but yeah, it it just you know like he wanted to get out and I wanted to buy it, so that was what happened. And um, and um. And I'm really glad that I could buy it um, because oh, the restaurant, you know? yeah, I'm the custodian of it in a way. You know, like yeah, the staff yeah. are, you know, are central you to everything. You make decisions. You know, it's yours. You know, do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's so wonderful to be in control of that. It's just it's so empowering. Yeah. You know, um, and to like, I mean, look, man, we spend like we spent five thousand dollars on 
handmade jugs last month. Or, you know, like for the jugs for the bloody dining room. I mean, when no people regrets, go, when no people regrets. are going to IKEA and that, you know what I mean? Yeah, we're sitting on chairs that cost you know eleven hundred dollars to make. They were made for Attica um, locally, you know, fifteen kilometers away, and they're an iconic Australian design. They're a feather, Grant Featherston's design from nineteen sixty one, and and like that is like. Uh, but that is money well spent. Like, yeah, yeah. Because they have connection, you know, like, and they're really comfy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they're beautiful. How do how do we get more chefs into business like that? You know, like you said, it's really I, difficult yeah, to, to scrape the money. Do you know what I mean? It, it is. It's, it's hard. Like, how are we going to do that? I, like, I've suggested, I keep suggesting that manufacturing is, is a great way to, for chefs to get into the yep. own, doing their own business. Yep. Because... I don't think I've told many people this, and I, I always tell so much stuff, and I'm like, "Oh, shut up!" I'm like, "Oh, whatever." But City Lad isn't my isn't my dream thing. That isn't this isn't like you know, it's a it's a step to where I want to get to. I want I would love to own a hotel. That's yeah. my, my dream is to own a hotel. That's cool. But and get back into cooking and restaurants and and, and to, in some sort of way. I'm not 100 sure. I'm not like 70 hours a week and all that again. Them no, days, man, them nobody days needs are gone. To work like that, yeah, man. them days are gone. But that would be my dream. Where am I going to get 2.3 million, 3 million? Yeah. I'm not going to get that. How am I going to get that? So the way, this is a process to get me to that point. I yeah. need to make a business. So I, I need to make a business over 15 years and be able to sell it for some amount of money so that I can use that money then to buy what I really want to do. You Just know what that what is I mean. though? What's that? There's one word for that. It's patience. Yeah. We don't have enough patience, you know, yeah, in society. Yeah. We want, we want, and cooks are the same. We want things too quickly, you know. And um, like I, I started in the kitchen when I was 10 I owned the restaurant, but I, I mean, I say I owned the restaurant, the bank owned the restaurant on my behalf yeah. when I was 38. That's a long time to wait. I was patient. Like, I never thought it would happen, but I, I kept the faith and I made some reasonably smart decisions. Like, when I had enough money to buy a deposit on a house, I did so rather than drinking that money or whatever, I, you know, yeah. like you do. I, I, I bought a house, a very modest house for $340,000 and, like, I had a $40,000 deposit. That's how I got into my first house. That house wasn't in Melbourne. It was in Ocean Grove. I had to move out of town to be able to buy a house for my family. I did that. And then, of course, over time, you know, the house price doubled and I paid down the mortgage a bit and and I had equity in my house and the equity was the key to buying Attica. Um, that and a huge bank loan. But if I didn't, haven't had bought that house, we wouldn't be sitting here. Yeah. It would have been a complete impossibility for me to buy the business without a partner. And having had... You know, an average experience under ownership. I didn't want a partner. Like yeah. I wanted, to, I was determined to own it. And then my parents aren't wealthy, but had invested like a very small amount of money in some Australian insurance fund or something. And they had sixty thousand dollars in a in a bank account. And they, so I took the equity in my home. I my, my long service leave. Any of the little tiny bit of savings I had, I sold a bunch of bicycles and stuff. I gathered all of my money. The sixty thousand dollars for my parents. I went to the bank. I had a good. I had a great. I have a great business mentor, and he introduced me to the bank manager at NAB. And it's not an advertisement for NAB, whatever. Like that's who I bank with. But yeah. I, um, and they said this is how much we can give you. It, it was just enough to purchase it, with everything that I had, all the equity and everything. Mm-hmm. And I just put it all. I bet it all on on the business over the house and everything. And um, you know, uns- like basically unsecured. Like yeah, they'll just this. take everything off you. They'll take everything. I yeah. yeah if yeah. if the restaurant goes broke i lose everything and um that at some point you have to you know like you have to own that like and i don't want to be the guy that if it didn't work then i didn't lose my house man if, if my business fails and i burn supplies i should lose my damn house yeah 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 that's a fact like 
why should I have a house if I owe hundreds of thousands of dollars to suppliers? So I should people. not. Yeah, I yeah. should not. And yeah. um, and so for me, it was pretty black and white because I was like, well, that's what it's going to take. And I'm and I was scared, really scared. Like like, oh, can I make it profitable? You know, um, I'm not good in business. I'm a chef. I'm not. I'm not good in business. And I, you know, a couple of couple of essential keys to like that success though was I had a really strong business plan and I developed it with Tad our business manager across seven or eight months it's how long it take to write the business plan before I bought the restaurant that was central to everything with strategy in there with strategy with every outcome with with what happens if this happens what happens if this happens what happens you know all the threats to the business and everything you consider I love business plans yeah I know most people hate them eh? but they're so important it's it's crucial it's the most important thing that you start it's like you know it's like the foundation of a house if Mm. you don't have a good foundation then the house will fall down a restaurant doesn't have a good business plan or any business doesn't have a good business plan it will fail you need to trust it as well. You do. You need to trust the numbers. If the numbers say no, it means no. Yeah, don't do the business. Don't if you do- can't afford to pay people properly, if you can't afford to um, pay your suppliers on time. Um, and if you're waiting for a bit of hope, I don't like the bit of hope in there. No. Like if, you know, if the Olympics come, we'll do all right in that year. Well, what about if the Olympics don't come? Do you know exactly. what I mean? Or them kind of things. No, do you, know what I mean? you can't it needs rely to be on black- those yeah, you can't rely on the variables. Yeah, you have exactly. to be honest with yourself. Exactly. And, yeah. You know, I once bought a bike when I was a kid. I knew it was wrong. I knew the bike was rubbish. I knew it was rubbish, but it had these good coloured wheels, blue wheels, and I went, I was like, oh, the wheels are good and it looks cool. I'm going to look great. I bought the bike. I drove down the road. I thought, this bike's a piece of shit. What did I buy this bike for? And I was gutted. And that feeling, I've always stuck with that feeling. I've always, mm. when I know it's shit, mm. it, that's it's, a great, walk away. what walk, a great way to live. Walk away. You know what I mean? You've no. got to know that. You've got to know it in your gut. You know, if, if, it, gonna, if it feels wrong, it probably is wrong, yeah, you know, yeah, um, yeah, but, exactly. but, but just the feeling is not enough, you know, like actually practically planning and writing things down in the business plan. It, it, it's really, and there's like, if you go to the Small Business Victoria website, there's an excellent template that anybody can download and, and start writing their business plan. And look, I, I would say to chefs and hospitality workers, if you want to have your own business and you're thinking that maybe it's going to be in five years, why not start writing a business plan now? Like, why not start? You know, trying to feel how it might be to operate the business from a financial perspective and a risk perspective and a planning perspective and what your business is going to be and how much money is going to come in. You know, worst case scenario, really, it's worst case scenario. Yeah, it's not best case scenario. It's a surprise if more comes in. Um, and how are you going to pay for everything? Um, because And how are you going to get the capital and, and, and how are you going to get, you know, the money for the cash flow for the first six months and what's going to happen if it gets quieter and how are you going to cut costs if you have to like um what i would say so you cut you off what i would say just before i forget this is if you're going to do that five year which i totally agree four years before i would what i would say is try budget your own money yeah live your life like you you were the yeah. business give yourself a percentage this is for like you know barefoot investor i don't know if you know about the barefoot investor i don't i never read it my partner's Fa- read it fantastic yeah. i love it honestly i love it because you get to live your life like you run a business so if you get that and you can manage your money in that way and keep it tight in areas do you know what i mean you've only got a hundred dollars to go out to spend on yourself yeah. and you've only got you know x amount and this is how much you've got to spend on your living expenses and see if you can run your life like that if you have to keep dibbling in a, in a different pots and and it's in, and it's a real stress for you well the business probably isn't for you no it's not and i think like i agree with you it i come from like a very like old school like family of like people in business that are conservative so i'm conservative and and i'm conservative in business i know it doesn't seem like i'm conservative with this restaurant but financially and from behind the scenes like operations of the restaurant where the money is going and how it's being 
calculated and where it's going and what's being paid, I'm incredibly conservative. Like if you went to my bookkeeper and my accountants, they would say, I have absolutely no doubt in saying that I'm their most conservative <laughs> client. I want to know <laughs> what we're going to have to pay, when we're going to have to pay it, and I want to pay it on time or before time because I don't want any complications. Yeah. And so I need to know. Otherwise, I can't sleep. And so we work out every week all of the future costs. So, you know, superannuation, payroll tax, um, holiday pay, um, the bass, you know, everything is calculated and set aside an automatic payment every week into a separate account. And, and then it's there. And as soon as those things come up, they're paid. The, the, all of the accounts, all of the outstanding amounts that are owed to suppliers and um, and wine, all that stuff, that is paid every single Wednesday. So there's never any debt really in the business beyond Wednesday. And that's just there because so many times I worked in restaurants where that wasn't the case and we were stringing supplies out for three or four months or longer. That's my world. Man. My world, I'm the, I'm the supplier. Oh, exactly. So you know, you I mean? know how much yeah, that course, sucks. Course, you know, but, know. The, but the crazy yeah. thing that yeah, you, know, the situation you find yourself in is that if I buy something from you today and you deliver it today... I have the benefit of being able to sell that immediately today. Yeah, of course. So yeah. I probably already got the money from you selling it to sure. me. And so I mean, why like, the hell shouldn't I pay you? Yeah. Like, oh man, this is a it's a it was huge for me. Cash flow. Imagine the cash flow on that. It's 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 re, it's incredible. Some of the cash flow is off the chart. Managing that, it's a real um, yeah. It's been a learning curve. That old one for sure. It's been a tough. Well, one. Well, you're a bank to other people. Exactly. You know that's what exactly. it comes down to. You exactly. know you're treated like a bank. Exactly. You know? and it's and not you, it's not fair and it's not right. Um, yeah. But that, and I I I, I I'm. Fortunate that I am not in that position because I'm, I'm the yeah. guy that can be taken advantage of that sure. if I want to. But I just don't, I don't, I honestly don't believe in terms. Like yeah, I, yeah. I just, you know, I, I get it. But I, uh, a little bit of me enjoys that. That I find that that's business. I like, yeah. I like that aspect of like I've it's got real, a, it's reality as well for you. Yeah, but it's yeah. just not a reality. No, if no. you were supplying me, it wouldn't be a reality. Which and that you'd be again on the same. And hand, you know why I do that? You, go on. Because I can sit here and look at you in the eye, yeah, and and the relationship is important. The human aspect is important, but also, I'm not asking for your second best parfait. Exactly, I know all your parfaits are the same quality, but I'm asking for your best parfait. Yeah, and if you if you forget to order and you call me, man, I want a I'll, delivery. I'll, yeah, exactly. Yeah, like I just I, I just want 100%. the best service yeah, as well. Yeah, it's exactly. not just about ethics. About what we do the same. We pay straight up. We pay early. Like even if it's on a Wednesday, we do our pay one on a Monday. We right. don't wait till Wednesday. We just pay, you know, on Monday. Yeah, yeah. We just do all the pay one on a Monday. We never miss a bill. It's just, and if we do, it's because the invoice has gone missing. That's or right. Like, you know, the rare exception happens. when that happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah happen absolutely. Constantly. Nobody's perfect. And someone but it's not intentional. That's for sure. It's definitely not intentional. Yeah. We're not fluffing things out or so. You no, know, no, no. And especially at Christmas, we go a bit harder as well before Christmas. Make sure that and even pay a bit early, especially the smaller suppliers, because you know they need the cash flow to get the, to get them through Christmas because we need a stockpile and da, da, da. but you just people aren't aware people aren't thinking things as deep well they're not thinking of other people and that's you know they don't have enough self-awareness and um for me like um you know i, I can visit any one of our suppliers at any time guilt-free yeah yeah and that says and look straight in his eyes and say hey, oh, we've got a relationship went to a, went to a small vineyard in rutherglen um scion wines the other day and i never met him before um he's a great guy and a great wines um and I just knew I could visit him without, like I could do a cold call there. And he's like, he was straight. I didn't even say anything to him. He said, oh, man, thank you. You guys are the best payers. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I know. Like, it's not an arrogant thing. It's just like, I'm, that's why I could come here today. Like, yeah, yeah. without 
checking zero. You know, people like, talk. People talk. We yeah, they do. someone someone approached well, us. People used to talk about us in the old days in a negative way before I owned it yeah, because we yeah, were so okay. bad at paying. Right. Okay. So you know, like, it, and that used they used to still supply us because of who we were, and that sucks, man. Like that sucks that people feel like they have to supply like a famous restaurant. You know, because taking advantage of the name or whatever. Yeah, you know, they were kind of getting ripped off. Like I did, mm. I just think that that sucks for suppliers. So Definitely. yeah, I don't want to be like that. I know I can't keep you much longer. I could talk to you all day. I just want to say, uh, in two thousand and when was uh, twenty one? So two thousand and one, I sat down with um, Albert Roo for an hour, and we had a conversation. It was amazing. I would have done anything to record that, and I truly feel like this is. This, and I'm getting the opportunity to speak to someone with that men- that same mentality. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I just want to say thanks, honestly. Like, oh, it's, man, it's, it's, I'm, it's, yeah, yeah, no, I'm glad we can record it. I'm glad I can share pleasure. it. It's, it's it's an amazing. I just want to say that. Um, real quick, because I, I know. Yeah, we, no, we, go for it. You got time. You've can't, you've, you put your chefs on four days on, four days on, three days off, mm-hmm. is that right? Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, ha- abuse in the kitchen, you, you're definitely not cool on at all. No. But yet, on the same hand, I've heard you say that, or read in the book, that, you know, it really helped you, you know, them hard times and, and, and fueled your fire to push forward. And I've, I battle with this also. I also, again, a little bit like the parents thing of letting the kids run free. Mm-hmm. I feel a bit the same in the kitchen. Like, I don't want to say, are we softening the chefs? And I don't believe that. I'm all for giving the... My guys work 38 hours, Monday to Friday, the whole thing. And I truly believe in it. But I don't know if it's the right thing in all in, in every angle. I really don't. What's your view well, on it? I think it? it's an individual's choice to... You know, I, I, think, I, think, I think there's two things. I think if you come to a restaurant like this or any famous restaurant, that young people will do what they're told. So... That's that's what I believe, and I, I know that because I know my influence on other people. And it talk, we talked about it earlier about going too deep, you know, creatively and like destroying people. It's the same with working hours. If I ask a chef to work a hundred hours a week, they will. Okay, but I'm the business owner. I'm I'm the person solely responsible for whether they work forty-eight hours or a hundred hours. It's a hundred percent my responsibility, morally, legally, ethically. So it doesn't matter if they want to or not. It's what is actually legally and morally correct. And and I think the whole mindset in industry needs to change. You know, like I am in some ways a product of working those hours because I always did and I don't have any regrets about it. I also understand that while it was my decision and I expect I accept personal responsibility for working those hours for all the people that I've worked for worked them for. I don't have any regrets and I don't think ill of any of those people that was the industry at that time some of the best days of my life were like that man i i i benefited so much yeah but would have i liked to have been paid for those hours i would have yeah. you know like honestly like would it have taken me to the age of 38 to buy my restaurant if i'd been paid for all the hours that i worked in my whole career you probably nearly retired <laughs> i don't know if i'll be retired but you know yeah like, i get it like you know what i mean i get like, it who's holding who back so you think that, that, that you should be able to work whatever hours you want, but you should be able to pay for what they are? Well, but then I, don't think, I don't think you should be able to work any hours you want. No, no. I mean, I think if it's your own business, it's different. You yeah, know? yeah, like, um, Because in England, you can sign out of it, you know? Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah. Well, we have strict... It's, it's, it's the thing is people here, right? say, oh, look, you know, it's you know, it's different here, it's different. It doesn't matter. This is the this is, this is is the set of laws that we have to work with in yeah, Australia, yeah, that, and we have to abide yeah, by them. Yeah, that's the rules. And yeah, there's, no yeah. point, there's no point any of us saying... I don't agree with it or it's wrong 
man, it doesn't matter. It is, yeah, you know, yeah. and we have to do. You yeah. know, if you don't like it, go go and exactly start go to else. a different country. Yeah, yeah, this yeah. is this is what we have to deal yeah. with. It doesn't matter if you agree with it or if I agree with it or not. Yeah, that's like, fantastic. Um, you know, we don't have stagiaires here. Like stagiaires are illegal in Australia. It's illegal to work for free. You know, like stagiaires are illegal now. Yeah, well, they always have been. Oh, right, okay. Um, but uh, unless they're unless they're an intern, that's that's college based. Yeah, or a student, student that is yeah. that is um, registered through a training institution like yeah. Le Cordon Bleu, and we have Le Cordon Bleu students sometimes. Yeah. That's a different thing. But just, you know, we would get dozens and dozens of emails every week about people wanting to come here and work for free. Well, we, we can't have that. It's against the law. Mm-hmm. And so um, this is like, you know, and I needed to be able to build a business that didn't rely on any of that stuff either. So when I took over, I eliminated that. That's amazing. Yeah, well, otherwise, like, you know, you can't, you haven't walk got a business. Walk, man. We don't, yeah. You don't have any credibility, you yeah, know. Yeah, like, yeah. Um, and but what about the abuse? You know, not abuse, but yeah, the, no, the, the hard, heavy. You know, well, there's different ways of being hard on people. Yeah. You know, like it. You it, don't. I, I, we don't yell. Okay, we don't need to yell at anybody. Like, yeah. I don't need to yell at anybody. I don't want anybody else yelling at anybody. People have arguments sometimes and disagreements in the heat of service or whatever. That's a different thing, and they'll be dealt with, and they'll be made to sit down and talk about it. You know, yeah, like yeah, yeah. and like find out but but i but i want people to have empathy for each other working in this environment i understand that different people are different for different reasons and we're all it's okay to be different you know it's okay yeah. to have different points of view um as long as they're respectful um but in terms of like these people are dedicated to what they do they are putting everything every day into what they do they are not mucking around they are not trying to stuff up yeah. you know they are working between 40 and 48 hours depending on their position and they are working an elite 40 to 48 hours and that yeah. is my expectation I'm not going soft on them I'm not being soft on them and I've been accused of being soft by people in the industry and that that my ideas and my my values will ruin industry it's such a backward way of thinking like and if they knew the reality it'd be like these people these people feel a lot of pressure, you know. Yeah, like they feel yeah. pressure from me. They feel pressure from guests. They feel pressure to perform. If we make a mistake, man, people are really upset about it. I don't need to ram it down their throat by yelling at them or putting them down. Like they don't. I can see it. I, I employ people when they make mistakes. I look them in the face and I can see it in their eyes. Yeah. That's you, you know, like you know yourself if you yeah, stuff yeah, up. Yeah. Like somebody's eyes will glaze over. You know that they're feeling their mistake. They'll say sorry. Yeah, that's enough. Like as long as they own their mistakes and they they don't fob them off and pretend like it wasn't their fault. Like that's that's what I asked for. You know, we were away a week ago and one of my cooks made a mistake and I was annoyed about it, but I didn't take it out on the person. I let them come to me and apologize because initially, you know, they sort of tried to blame somebody else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Hi, or said know. I don't know what happened or I did it and it, but you didn't do it. Like so. I just let them come to that realization by themselves. And at the end of service, they came and they said, I'm really sorry. I know that that happened on my section and, um, you know, I'm going to do better. And and that's the sort of culture that I want where they, they think deeply on it. And I, and I do that. I, and the way I get that is by saying to them, hey, listen, you know, the stakes are high, you know, like, like. While I don't feel the weight of people's expectations, I understand their expectations about coming here. And we don't have a money crowd here. Like we have people that save to come here and it means something to them to come here. And we have a great responsibility to those people. So if somebody makes a mistake, I'm more likely to say to the team generally, and I don't single a person out, I'll say to them, listen, you know, last night they came and there was a bug in their food, you know, like, and 
the we have an organic garden. It's an e- it's a relatively easy thing to happen. It shouldn't happen, but it, it occasionally happens. It, it can, can happen. Yeah, it can happen. We're not yeah. perfect, you know. We don't yeah. spray any pesticides at all in our organic garden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and but if you don't pay attention to checking the leaves, it can happen occasionally. Yeah, and so could be underneath a leaf or something along. Yeah, the way. yeah, yeah, it could happen. It could happen. And so somebody can be very disappointed. And so I say to them, listen. Think about this. Think about this from the customer's perspective. You know, you're in the kitchen every every night doing your job and working, but think about it from a non-hospitality perspective. You've heard, you've watched Chef's Table, you've you've read a review, you've heard about World's Fifty Best, you've you know you've heard a, read an interview, you've listened to a podcast, you know, um, and you've heard, oh, this place sounds wonderful. You know, um, I want to go there. You look on the website. Whoa, it's booked out for three months. You try to book. You can't get a table. You try to book. You can't get a table. You try to book for a couple of years. You can't get a table. You finally get a table. You're like, wow, it's two hundred ninety-five dollars per person for the food. So I'm going to need to save, you know, four hundred fifty dollars for myself and whatever for whoever I'm coming with. So they start saving. Maybe they have. Maybe they have children. They need to organise a babysitter. They have to pay for a babysitter. Maybe they have to fly from another country. Oh, quite often happens. Maybe they have to fly from interstate. They come here and they sit down and they're hyped. They're like, wow, I can't wait to go. It's like the door looks amazing. Look at the door. You know, like, <laughs> the door oh, handle, people are so yeah, nice. Yeah. They're like, oh, look, look, everyone's like happy and laughing and joyful and the staff are really engaged with us. And then the first thing comes out and there's a little bug on it. And it's like, boom, it dives, right? So explaining it to them in those terms, understanding that like every action has a reaction. <laughs> it's positive and negative. And... And so I don't need to yell at them because I make them sh- acutely aware of their responsibility, you know. And we are human. We still make mistakes. But I make them aware of their responsibility. I don't need to yell about the, yell at them to, to for them to understand that. It's yeah. easy. And it sounds very heavy and serious. And it kind of is. Yeah, you know? it is. It is. Yeah. But, I don't, is. But, I, but, but most of the time, to be honest, we joke. Yeah, we laugh. Yeah, yeah. You know, like we have fun. And even during service and I'm in the kitchen in service, I'll be, you know, ribbing, you know, the cook cooking the marins in a gentle way you know or i'll yeah, be making yeah. jokes um quietly about our head chef on the past with with another chef you know like it's Make a family yeah it's yeah, a family yeah, yeah. environment i'm trying to diffuse some of the tension as well mm. and some of the stress you know yeah yeah yeah. because um, exactly. we are even working 40 to 48 hours we are under a lot more stress than a lot of other industries <laughs> yeah Absolutely. i mean not we're not 100%. under the sorts of a stress that people that work in the emergency services are or people you know the sort of stress threatening things no or the sort of stress that you know a judge is under in a court having to make decisions about people's lives we are not under that sort of stress but we are still under a high level of stress definitely mm. like almost like public speaking do you know what i mean because it's so personal yeah you know it what is I mean? yeah and we're trying to be sincere about it we're not yeah. trying to be phony on the menu you've got kangaroo with i want to really screw this up Truganini? Truganini. Is that the lady? Yeah, it, it is, but it's actually the name. So it's the Bruny Island Aboriginal name from for... Tasmania. Is it in Tasmania? Yeah, just Bruny Island's just off there. And Truganini is the name of Atriplex cinerea, which is grey saltbush. Right, so okay. Truganini, the famous Aboriginal Australian, the lady, it's the, the woman, the lady, yep, yeah, and it's yeah, the yeah. person that Midnight All sang, sang about, and yeah. she she was a she's a famous person in this area. She was um, kind of a renegade in this area, and um, and one of the last 
surviving. She was one of the last surviving um, people from Bruni Island, and so her 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 group of people, her her clan, named her Truganini after Atriplex Cenaria. So the word Truganini is that lady's name, yeah. but it's also the the Bruni Island Aboriginal name for that that plant. Right. Okay. So that we discovered that through in-depth research because yeah because when we when I, I first started working with um with grey saltbush or atriplex cinerea or, or native sage as it's been dreadfully called um it was the first really the first indigenous green that we worked with and that was a very long time ago nobody was using it on menus in australia at the time and mm. probably been used before me in the 90s and in the 80s and stuff but there was no reference to it and um and people were saying oh it's called native sage and i couldn't stand that term um and so i'm always looking kind of for more truthful words what is it really yeah what's the real name yeah yeah, yeah it's important and it's very difficult because uh, a lot of language and culture has been destroyed deliberately here so it's can be it can be really hard because when i when i was searching this and like i said doing research and that lady kept and i read about her and it said i hope this isn't disrespectful because i'm a bit ignorant in these kind of things but it said um the last full-blooded Aboriginal who lived in Tasmania is that is that is that? I right? think that's correct. I'm, yeah. I couldn't confirm that. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. That's, what, that's but, what it says. Yeah. So I was like, I was trying to. Yeah, it was very interesting to read about. Mm. What a hard times! Like, oh horrend- man, horrendous, and, uh, like, horrendous. You, yeah, it, it's just impossible for either of us to imagine oh, what her and Lost her people so and her family yeah. went through. Oh, I mean, God. it's just a. The start the and worst kept going, nightmare. And just kept going. Amazing. It says also. Oh, her people were massacred. You know. Yeah. Horrendous. Mm, yep. O- uh, oysters the traditional way. Yep. Yeah. What, what's, the, what's okay? So that, that yeah, I'm glad you picked up on that. Um, so that oysters the traditional way is literally means that you know, but except we don't know what that means here in Australia generally. But I know what it means because I spent time on country with Uncle Noel Butler, mm. who's the Budawang man who I mentioned earlier. Yeah, yeah. Um, so one of the uh, we're very close friends and. He, um, I'm really grateful for the knowledge that he's shared with me and the knowledge that she, he shared for me is I use in this dish. It's inspired by Uncle Noel. And so when the, one of the, well, the last few times that we've been together, he, he lives um, close to um, a lot of oyster farms on the south coast of New South Wales. And we got oysters and bimblers and other shellfish um, from the from the coast, and his people have always lived on that food. And he taught me how to cook them the way that they always cook them, and that is basically in the shell, unshucked, and cooked over over embers um, on a on a grate. And you put them on there and let them cook, and they sort of naturally pop a little bit, and you and you just eat them straight out of the shell, and it's so delicious. And such a wonderful way, and I wanted to when kind of pop. Is that when you know they're ready? Is that yeah? I mean, they don't always pop, but um, right, okay. but I mean, the bimblers, um, which are like a blood cockle, um, which you can't get commercially, they they always they open up, yeah. and they need to be cooked quite hard and almost you know what we would typically th- consider as overcooked, yeah. but they're better like that. Um, the oysters too, you cook them a lot more than you would normally. It's not like eating a you know a, sh- a freshly shark natural oyster. Yeah. Um, so. Uncle Noel was, you know, is incredibly ger- uh, generous with his culture and his people's knowledge, and he shared that with me. And um, you're sharing and, with and else. yeah, and we're sharing it, but it's not exactly the same way that Uncle Noel does it. But it's it's inspired by Uncle Noel, and um, and um, so those, you know, that's why those those relationships are so important as well. But it's also important that we're able to tell people about Uncle Noel because he's an Australian hero yeah. you know, and he's a great man and him and his um, wife Trish um, 
run a terrific business where they educate people on on indigenous know-how and um and his vast amount of knowledge that he holds, he know, knows more about stuff than probably any other human that I know, like just general, you know, like he's just an amazing <laughs> character. And he's like, you know, his life is, you know, to most people has been very hard, um, but he's not beaten by it. And he says um, to me, um, you know, the only person that can hurt you, Ben, is yourself, you know, like uh, you don't listen to you know, we were there a few months ago and he said the day before we arrived, he um he was walking across the street and a guy drove past in a ute and yelled out, you know, I don't even want to repeat what he yeah. said. To be honest, I don't want to repeat it. Um, disgusting. Yes, just disgusting. unbelievably disgusting. Like, you call this wonderful human, this real hero, in fact, um, that name, uh, biggest belief, you're a... Uh, an incredibly small, small, small person. Something that, bad will happen to that person, I'm pretty sure. I'm right. sure you're right, yeah. I think I am. Yeah. Bunya pine? Yep. What, what, that's also a, a native. Yeah, uh, so it's the, Bunya, Bunya, Bunya is in, indigenous to Queensland. Yeah. Um, but fortunately, we have. They were a popular Victorian plant in the 19th century to plant around here. Um, so we have three in the gardens at Ripponley Estate. And they're a huge. Uh, they're a conifer. Um, but they're an ancient conifer, so not like you know, the conifer pine, tree, like the, yeah, yeah, like yeah, a pine yeah, pine, pine tree, tree family. Yeah, yeah. And um, they have a huge cone, um, and it has I don't know exactly how many, maybe eighty pine nuts in the cone. The cone can weigh kind of twelve kilos, fourteen kilos when they're fully big and mature. Um, and it's the world's largest pine nut that it has inside there. So they have these big kernels inside there. And um, and when we took over the garden at Ripponley Estate, when we started growing vegetables over there about 10 years ago, um, you know, one March, these cones started falling from the tree. And we were like, what the hell are these? And um, and Justin Buckley, who's the head gardener of the National Trust, um, said, well, you know, his, his particular passion at the time, still now, was... Um, Queensland indigenous plants and he said oh that's a bunya pine cone and people ate those and I was like wow so I started looking into it and learned through indigenous people that there was a culture around the pine um, the pine cone and that there was this ceremony and and Aboriginal people would gather from you know miles away from two or three hundred kilometers sometimes because the fic- the, the tree is quite fickle so the harvest is not annual it's like Cyclical, wants. yeah. There is. I don't know. They, they. I'm sure they could. Um, Aboriginal people would Definitely. know the cycle, but for sure. even for me, it doesn't make like being in the garden for ten years. It's not. It's erratic. Mm. Um, so, like, so when they would have a bumper harvest, we we might get two thousand pine nuts out of the garden, and they're you know they're about the size of fifty cent piece. And um, and so I learned that um, you know before European settlement, um, that there was these sort of festivals and parties held around the pine and the nuts and um, different clan groups would come and spend time together and feast on the nuts and they cooked them in a variety of ways you know they ate them raw and they fermented them and they cooked them in the fire and they dried them and ground them into a flour for bread and had a myriad of uses for them and um and they're delicious and they fermented them as well and we do that with them um we eat them raw as well um and so um we started using them and like nobody was interested in them in restaurants really um to be honest at the time and people would eat them and just say they don't have any value and that's just another way of kind of putting down um indigenous culture in my opinion you know um, by rejecting it and saying it has no value for me though was this amazing delicious thing it didn't taste any like anything else you know yeah yeah um and it was truly 
special to this country. This is where they belong. This is where they're from. And um, and so we they've been a core ingredient ever since then. Um, and yeah, we're still using them. Um, in fact, we recreate the nut and looks like you can eat the whole thing. You can't. The shell is incredibly hard on them. Um, yeah. But we make a shell and yeah, make an ice cream from them. Um, emu liver. Yep. Is it good? I've never had emu liver. Uh, it's very hard to work with. Is yeah, it? that's one of the actually. Because I was like, when I seen emu liver, I was like, oh, here we. Maybe I mean, you'll be interested because ba- yeah, effectively we're making an emu liver parfait. Yeah, I was thinking. I wonder if there's some. You know, it's so difficult. Is it? Yeah. It, it took. Um, well, Mark. Uh, you know, Mark Catchpole, one of our junior sous chefs, he developed the recipe, um, and he would have had to make that. Um, I think he made it more than 50 times. Yeah, um, yeah I know. And it just wasn't happening. Um, and we left that one for a while and came back to it. And eventually, um, through the right combination of ingredients, um, you know, like I said earlier, we're in a Jewish neighborhood, so we wanted to have a bagel on the menu. Yeah. Um, so that's with bagel and um, and a really strong dam, jam of Davidson plum, another indigenous fruit. Um, so it's cool to use that because... Um, it's not again, you know, probably been put into dog tucker or been thrown away. Um, uh, so yeah, we, we we've used emu for years. Um, we've used the eggs, the meat, um, the feathers. We still use the feathers, um, and now we're using the liver. So that's kind of amazing. Yeah, and it's delicious. People love it. Yeah. What's the um, what last thing? What's what's the the good fish project? Is it a good fish project? Yeah. So I'm an ambassador for the good fish. Fish Project and the Australian Marine Conservation Society and um, the Australian Marine Conservation mean, it's probably worth going into a little bit of detail about the Australian Marine Conservation Society it's mm. a not-for-profit that was established in the 1960s by um, environmentalists and scientists so it's a 100% science-based organisation and it's really important for people to know that about that organisation it's not just about um, being a you know, hypothetically, a greenie or yeah, you know, yeah. like protesting, or yeah, it's, yeah, it's actually yeah, yeah. based on fact. This is um, the, this is the this truth. Is the reality. Yeah, this yeah. is the truth. Um, and um, and so they they are an organisation that I always greatly admired because I'm I've been you know I've lived by the coast my whole life. I'm a surfer, um, and when I had children, I started to be more concerned with the state of the oceans, and I've seen the destruction as a child as well where I grew up and. Um, and so when they approached, and I'd been making um, hard decisions on sustainability in regards to fish and ocean creatures uh, for more than 10 years, you know, it was a period of time where we couldn't determine what species of fin fish were sustainable to harvest and to eat and what weren't. So we had, we removed fin fish from the menu completely for two years. Um, so I, I actually looked into that just to take you, I looked into that, I was like, fin fish, I was looking, I was like, I couldn't work out what it was. Basically, that's all fish. There's fish, yeah. But when you say fish, sometimes people think, you know lobsters and um yeah and um, so i was like is it some specific fish i was like i did a like, fish with a fin yeah, yeah. And I was like, yeah. It's, a, it's like basically anything that swims in the other apart from like crustacea you know yeah like, yeah no mollusks or crustaceans yeah exactly um, yeah, and I was like, yeah. is it something that i don't know but no that's it basically yeah, that, yeah that's it so yeah so fish completely off the menu yeah. um and uh for two years and um and while i did my own research into it and um and came to the conclusion that we could use some fish from around here, but one of the, the, the one of the guiding lights because they are independent of 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 industry um, and of government um, was the Marine Conservation Society. And so when they approached me to become their ambassador, and they were trying, we, we've been launching this new program, the Good Fish Project, where we get restaurants to sign up to basically what equates to a charter, um, and you download a very simple app. 
and you can search the fish you're thinking of using and you can determine whether or not it's sustainable like green, to use it. Green, blue, and red. So yeah, yeah, green, orange, and um, and red. So red, red is obviously red absolutely joy. do not yeah, use. Yeah. Um, orange is like, it's a bit iffy, you know? Like, maybe it's okay, maybe it's not. Maybe it... There's not enough information about it. There's Still not enough research it. about it. Yeah, be better not to use it. Yeah. Um, and green is it's good to use or it's okay to use. Yeah. And um, and so obviously, you know, we would only ever have anything on our menu that's on the green list. And even before they approached us, and I, when they approached us, um, you know, I said, well, you should just like do an audit on us and like make sure that we are in the green list. And they didn't audit us and we're in the green list. I, I already knew that, but I wanted it to be a sincere and genuine thing. Yeah. And I, and I, we went further than that as well because they're basically, you know, Good Fish Project is um, about Australian seafood. And um, we went further and looked at our fish sources and um, our oyster sources and any products that we were using that were imported in our cooking and changed those as well. Because, you know, say, for example, if you're using a fish sauce from Thailand, uh, you know, you could be using anchovies um, and there's a lot of slavery involved in anchovy fishing in that area. So you could be, you know, the anchovies could be overfished, but you could also be harming humans as well by supporting companies that don't have like strong a chocolate. moral like a chocolate man exactly yeah, like yeah. chocolate you know, like coffee yeah. chocolate um and so yeah actually and also because we have like an insane amount of allergies that we cater here for we actually now use um an australian made vegan fish sauce which sounds totally weird but it's actually really so much like fish sauce it's ridiculous yeah. It's scary yeah yeah yeah, it's so, fun. so yeah, so that's what it is. Or, or, or we also make our own from yeah, sustainable so, local fish. Yeah. So if anyone, so chefs really, they should get download the app if, if they, yeah. If they um, want to so it's on, on in the in the uh, app store. It's Australia's Sustainable Seafood Guide, um, which is a little bit confusing. Um, but basically, if you go to the Marine Conservation Society's website, you'll find Australia's Sustainable Seafood Guide, and that has the most information. On the app, it's quite short, the information. Yeah. Um, so if you go into your web browser on your computer, there'll be more information. And if you want to sign up to become a restaurant that's part of the Good Fish um, project, and you go onto the Good Fish website. And um, I think there's about 45 r restaurants in Australia that have signed up at the moment, and I'd like to see more. I think, um, you know, like if you love food, then you have a responsibility to understand about the harm you're doing. And um, and this is like, you know, a really good way forward because it's a very clear and um, precise guide. I think 93% of the species in Australia are listed on there, and they're adding more as we, yeah. as we travel on. Yeah. Um, and so I think, um, you know, I think chefs, you know, you know, uh, are influential on society and um, therefore have some moral responsibility to make sure that their menus are clean, um, you know, with sustainable choices because um, it's not just customers that are coming to restaurants to, to eat the food, but it's also people that are looking at menus online and on Instagram um, and using inspiration. Oh, oh you see, oh, wow. Um, Oh, such and such has made a bluefin tuna dish. I'm going to go and buy a bluefin tuna tonight. I mean, horrific, like totally horrific. Don't do it, you know. Like, yeah. but, but if, but you trust chefs. People, it's a right or wrong. Uh, society yeah, trusts yeah. chefs and professionals. And I think profession we know more about food than we do sometimes too. Right? That's a fact. That yeah. is that is definitely. We know a, a lot fact. about cooking. We don't necessarily know about food. Definitely, you know? definitely. Yeah. Well, listen. To finish up, reggae or rock? Oh, uh, 
I'd say rock. I'd say like I'd say like older rock, like um, you know, like post rock. I'd say like Television, The Feelies, any of the uh, bands on the New Zealand label, Flying Nun, like The Clean. Um, you know, uh, oh, weird. Yeah. Too weird. I I'm yeah. like, uh, that, I was yeah. thinking more like Rolling Stones and the Beatles. Oh <laughs> man, those guys are way too mainstream. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're great as well. Yeah, Jordan or LeBron. Oh, Jordan, because I saw him play in 1998, this oh. last season, I saw him play the Toronto Raptors, and I saw him rise up for a two-point jump shot to win the game, like he does, you know, in all the final series, as I remember as a kid, and he just destroyed them, so, yeah, Jordan, I think, but I think um, LeBron is a really inspiring human, he's a great social conscience, so I think kind of, as a public figure, you know, LeBron is really inspirational, I mean, and as a basketball player, he's, he's a destroyer, but, um, but I just think Michael just played a more beautiful game. Comfy or roast? roast? Roast. Not comfy guy, no. <laughs> and peas or asparagus? Peas, because I, you know, I can eat them frozen out of season. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ben, thank you very much for your time. You've been so generous and it was, it was an honour, honestly. I'm not joking. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank, thank you. you. So that's the end of season three. I hope everyone enjoyed it and took some from it. Maybe a bit of inspiration or a little bit of knowledge you've managed to impl- implement in your life or your business. Or maybe just, you know, a bit of encouragement to, to go and chase whatever you've got to be chasing. If you can be bothered, please write a review. That would be fantastic. It re- reviews really, really help. Really help get more listeners. I'm running out of mates. I'm running out of mates to interview. I need to get I need to start getting into a bigger pool. Do you know what I mean? Get that, get that pool filled up. Some new guests to get in there. Unless I'm going to be recycling some of them guests. Um, yeah, if you can give us a, 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 a review, that'd be fantastic. If not, just hit five stars, four stars, three stars, whatever you got to do, whatever you feel like's honest. Be honest. Hit, give us, give us a, a starred rating on your on your podcast app. And if you can't bother doing any of them, just tell a mate. When you're having your staff dinner, family meal, what some of you might say, or stood at the bar having a pint and you run out of conversation. You might be in the Uber. You might be in the Uber, you know, you sat at the back on the way home in the Uber and you're like, oh, fuck, now to talk about what am I going to say? Just tell him all about this podcast. That'd be fantastic. On the bus. Oh, your nana. Go out and see your nana. What's your nana doing? Do you know what I mean? Probably just waiting for the club to open to play bingo or whatever. Tell her. She might listen to it. Until next time, have a great one. <laughs>